Welcome back to Louisville Reads. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP, Louisville. Hell of an episode today, reviewing Hell of a Book, a novel by Jason Mott, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction. Interview with the author on the back half. Stay tuned. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 28 of Louisville Reads, continuing our study of contemporary Pan-African and African-American letters started in January, reviewing the 2021 Nobel Prize for Literature winner Abdurrazak Gurna's Paradise, and last episode in February, reviewing the 2021 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Harvard historian Dr. Tia Miles is all that she carried, the journey of Ashley Sack, a black family keepsake for Black History Month. We'll finish the series out next episode, reviewing the 2021 Man Booker Prize winner, The Promise, by South African novelist Damon Galgut. But today we have a hell of a show for you, because today we will be reviewing Hell of a Book, a novel by African-American writer and poet Jason Mott, winner of the 2021 National Book Award for Nonfiction. The long title is actually Hell of a Book, or the Altogether Factual, Holy Bonafide Story of a Big Dreams Hard Luck American-Made Mad Kid. But more on that after some station business. Forward Radio went on the air for the first time on April 9, 2017, and we need your help to keep us on the air for another five years. We are marking our station's fifth anniversary with a pledge drive from March 27th through April 9th with the goal of raising $5,000. And you can pick up some fabulous one-of-a-kind thank you gifts when you make your donation at forwardradio.org. You're also invited to celebrate our fifth birthday party with us on Saturday, April 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Tim Faulkner Gallery in Smoketown. Food, drinks, live music, and speakers. Please join us. Please donate. Please celebrate. Visit forwardradio forward slash donate to make a tax-deductible gift and be part of the movement. Also visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. That's L-O-U Reads. Visit us on Twitter at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Visit us on Instagram at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Follow our YouTube and SoundCloud links to archived episodes for both Louisville Reads and the former Read and Succeed. And leave your thoughts and comments. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. The 2021 National Book Award winner for fiction, Hell of a Book, or the altogether factual, wholly bona fide story of a big dreams, hard luck, American-made mad kid, is like the similarly long-titled 2021 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack, A Black Family Keepsake, Tragically Good. It is extremely tragic subject matter. It is also extremely good writing. 
But whereas Ashley's sack by Tia Miles concerns the promises and perils of the black American experience at the dawn of 19th century emancipation through a purely historical lens, Hell of a Book by Jason Mott concerns the promises and perils of the black American experience in the here and now of the 2020s through a purely literary lens. It could be reasonably and critically argued that Hell of a Book is quite possibly one of the most quote-unquote literary texts in the black literary canon surpassing even James Baldwin and Toni Morrison in that regard. As hell of a book, in its magical realist, almost N.C. Escher-like framework, it's a novel written by a black novelist about the struggles that black novelists have writing black novels about black novelists. Allow me to explain. In an unnamed Midwestern American state, an unnamed black male author, whose name we never learn, sits on the next stop on a cross-country book tour promoting his most recent work, Hell of a Book. By publicly reaping the financial rewards and security for his creativity and imagination, said author, one immediately assumes it's a thinly-veiled Jason Mott, is having very private, creative, and imaginative struggles in the solitude of his hotel room. Seen only to him, and apparently visiting him for some time, is the apparition of a young, black, male adolescent simply named The Kid. Very, almost mesmerizingly dark-skinned, per the author, a completely unalarming, almost comforting presence, per the author, and one also carrying visible gunshot wounds to his abdomen. Outside of the narrator and the kid's private dialogues on the black American experience as they make their way from promotional event to promotional event, a national dialogue is raging on media outlets across the United States as it wrestles with yet another police-involved shooting of a young, unarmed black American male. As inside the novel itself, the hell of a book in hell of a book, and also the hell of a book you yourself are reading, an inner dialogue rages as a character named Soot also a young, unarmed black American male, comes of age in the 2020s America where yet another police-involved shooting of a young, unarmed black American male is still a tragically regular occurrence. All roads, be they real or imagined, eventually converge, however, in that the, the identities of Soot, the apparition of the kid, and their unnamed narrator are never even partially revealed, but one gets the impression that they all are, at least in literary space, one and the same persona. Soot is the kid who is the narrator, who is Mr. Jason Mott, who is essentially any black American male from adolescent to award-winning novelist to president of the United States, whose life could arbitrarily end without any legal recourse whatsoever by the very law enforcement systems assumingly created to protect and serve them. The unnamed novelist in Hell of a Book was warned by his publishers that whatever he did, don't write about race. Jason Mott's Hell of a Book delivers one of the most brilliant, poetic, almost mystically prescient conversations about race in our current moment, by a member of one of America's most vulnerable demographics, by writing a book where nobody really knows who is who or who they are really talking to or writing about at all. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. This next portion is an interview with novelist Jason Mott about Hell of a Book by New York Times bestselling author Matteo Ascaripor. Matteo himself is black Iranian-American. The interview was conducted in August of 2021 and hosted by New York City's Brooklyn-area Mercantile Library Center for Fiction previously known as the New York Mercantile Library. Fascinating, spoiler-free discussion of the text and important in that both Mr. Mott and Mr. Matteo are, obviously, both actively living the same modern black American male experience that the characters in Hell of a Book are trying to come to terms with. I think that dynamic opened this interview up to a level of emotional intimacy and honesty about the subject matter that maybe was a little less so in some of Mr. Mott's other interviews. Thanks to the Center for Fiction for making this content publicly available. To learn more about the Center for Fiction, please visit centerforfiction.org. To learn more about Louisville Reads, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. And enjoy this interview.
Jason, anything you want to say before we jump in, brother? Um, no, I'm just glad to be here, man. I'm looking forward to it. I've been waiting on this the whole month long. <laughs> I'm sure people have made uh, a dozen of corny jokes saying that this is a hell of a book. If yes, you've sir. read the book, <laughs> you see people, it's, it's so funny when they're like, hell of a book. He's like, I know. The other's like, I know. Um, but it, it truly is. Um, it could be called hell of a lot of things, actually. Hell of a history, um, hell of absurdity, uh, hell, hell of hilarity, hell of heart as well. Um, and for me, just kicking it off, I was reading this and I was like, wow. And I told Jason this before we started. I said, wow, they actually published this because this book is going against what Jack, the media trainer, who we'll get into, he is, uh, mm -hmm. he's a character, both literally and literarily in the book. Um, he advises the, the protagonist author to not do or say certain things. But Jason, as the author of this novel, does do those things, namely um, discussing the, the publishing industry candidly, discussing the concept of race candidly, discussing the concreteness of what it means to be black in, in America candidly. Um, and I'm just so grateful that you read this book, um, not just from the perspective of a reader, but also a young black writer, right? You've been, you've been around for at least a decade. You're the OG compared to me. And reading this book, uh, while very, very funny, reminds me that the reality that I'm experiencing as someone who just published a book isn't mm -hmm. anything that I'm making up mm -hmm. in my mm -hmm. head, right? I read this and I'm like... And he's putting on the page things that I have felt over the past six or so months since my debut came out. And I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you for writing, man. Um, just kicking it off. Um, speaking about your book, right? At one point, the protagonist, who is an author, enters a bookstore, stares at his author photo, and doesn't even recognize himself. Mm -hmm. He can speak to what his book is about from the marketing script, but when he goes off script, he has no idea what he's actually saying. Mm -hmm. um, for me, when my book came out, I, I realized that it ceased to be my own when I got an agent. It became less of my own when we sold it, and even further less when we published it. So mm -hmm. I guess what's been your experience with uh, not just this book, but your previous books, going from a product of your mind um, to being transformed into something else that has thousands of fingerprints all over it and the impressions of others. Yeah, no, I think you described it just perfectly, dude. Like there's this weird phenomenon where when you're writing the project, you spend all these years kind of in secret with this thing, living with it, and nobody else has ever seen it. Nobody else knows what it's about. It's just you and the work that you're working on, the characters and the story, and it's all yours. <clears throat> but the moment you find an agent you enter into the machine that is publishing. And that's not meant to be a bad kind of derogatory term against publishing. It's just a fact of life that like, it goes from being yours solely to being yours and the agents, and then yours, the agents and the editors, and then yours, the agents, the publishing team, and then the, the reader. And somewhere along that way, you begin to like, you start to, there's this weird distance that cre gets created between you and the thing that you actually made. Mm -hmm. Because other people will come to it and they'll see parts of it that you never saw. A part of it, maybe sometimes parts you didn't plan on having there. Yeah, but they'll see it in a whole new way that you never expected it to be seen. And so suddenly it's like you don't really recognize your own work to a certain degree. It's like, yeah, I do remember like this part of it. And there are all these new things that you're seeing in it. And it's really fascinating. Like, I don't you know, it's not meant to sound bad at all. Like, it's a really cool, weird process. But it's just it's really fascinating. Like you, you think you know your work. And then as soon as someone else encounters it, it becomes a shared project that suddenly is not just yours, it's theirs also and they have as much of a stake to it as you do 
And that's just something that you have to kind of learn to work with and deal with as a writer. Yeah, man, I, I, I feel the same way. And, and it's freeing in some sense to know that you don't need to own this entire thing, that it can be mm-hmm. a gift in some ways uh, to the world. But what about, what about your intentions, right? Like I'm sure you had your intentions while writing the book, but then it's out there and you're getting all this new information that you didn't have before in, in mm-hmm. the form of feedback uh, from people on Instagram or reviews. Mm-hmm. I was going to say on Goodreads, but I'm sure that you, that you know by now that we shouldn't be reading them. I had to learn that the hard way. Um, <laughs> so so, <laughs> so uh, does that in any way change uh, the way that you view your intentions for a work? No, I think, I think it, it, it changes it a little bit, but you have to learn to like not let it change too much of mm-hmm. what you're doing. Because yeah. there's this weird component with writing where as soon as the work is written and as soon as it's out there, like it does become owned by the other people that encounter it. Like there are books that I, that I've read that obviously I didn't write. There are books that I read, that, like it's my book. Like if I met the author and the author said, I didn't mean this, like, Hey, too bad, homie. That's how I took it. It's mine. <laughs> and this is the meaning that I take from it. So too bad for you. Yeah. And so when someone else does that with your own work, um, you still have to, at the end of the day, you have to kind of like hone in on like, this is what I intended. Yeah. And if you're reading something different there, that's cool. But is it that you found something that I did not put there or, there's something I put there I didn't even know about. And so at some mm. point along the way, you have to kind of say, well, this is my intention in the future and I've got to find a way to say it better. It's, it's part of that long journey of writing, man. Like you, it's part of the craft and beauty of writing is that like, again, the feedback actually helps you because when you see other people finding new things, you're like, oh man, I didn't even try to create that. And I've got to go back in now and like learn how to control that feeling that this reader got or this the idea the reader got from it. I've got to control that next time. So mm. it becomes this ongoing process that from creative standpoint is really exciting, really fun. Wow. So Jason, right. I got a couple other questions that I want to ask, but going off what you just said in terms of uh, people not um, forcing you to change your, your intentions for, for you to remember where you were at and what you were trying to do when you wrote your book. What about, what about criticism, right? Mm -hmm. You've been in this, you have, you have not only survived, but you've thrived. Like, look at this, you know, by the way, we didn't say you were selected by Jenna Bush Hager for the Today Show, right? Yep. Yep. Correct. Right. So what I was thinking was you made that happen. So I wouldn't be the only one when you rolled in here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Congrats on that, man. And it Thank also you, man. feels like you manifested it because you mentioned the Today Show in this book. Yeah, it's a weird like it's a weird thing. Like so much of that was. Like with this book, I really wanted to kind of poke fun at some of my past experiences as a writer. Like being a writer is a weird, it's a weird phenomenon. I think people don't get a chance to see a lot of. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to really run through the gambit and like poke fun at like the publishing process and authors and how authors are perceived versus how authors actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, there's a part in there where we talk about like the Oprah book club being canceled, you know, back in, back when I think 2013, whatever it was, yeah. it got canceled and like million little uh, making pieces fun of or that. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They, they the milk ran out with the, <laughs> think what it was. <laughs> um, because again, like there's this whole world of publishing that readers don't get to experience. And, you know, even if you are reading, you go out and you meet an author at a book event, you, you know, somewhere it's like you get this very small slice of their weird, strange life. And so I wanted to kind of capture that, but there's also a weird pressure that comes with being a writer. And there's a pressure with coming with having people read your work and, enjoy your work is that like they want to enjoy it more and you've got to find your space in the middle of all that and it's, it's a weird place to navigate so I wanted to capture some of that insanity and also have a discussion about race in America and all those heavy topics in the course of this book as well going off what you just said what about when when readers want more beyond the book right when they mm-hmm. want to commodify you mm-hmm. as an author versus seeing you as a person who wrote a book 
Um, what are your thoughts on that, or how do you react to it? No, I, th- I think you. I think it's a weird. It's a. It's a duality where like you have to. You have who you are, and you have who people perceive you as. Yeah. And that's the story of human existence. Like that is. That's really just the way it is being a person. Like we are all this internal version of ourselves, and then we are this external version. Of, like our family sees us one way, our friends sees us one way, our significant others see us another way, strangers we meet see us another way. And so there's this whole thread about identity in the novel and identity, particularly as black, black people, but also as writers, where as a writer, you are expected to be this voice of, you know, voice of clarity for either certain demographics or just certain ideas or politics. And you're trying to navigate all that, even as you're just trying to exist as a person, like you're trying to figure it out for yourself in addition to help other people figure it out for themselves as well. Mm. Um, So the book definitely tries to, to work around that. And like, I personally, something I've struggled with and still struggle with is I think it's a, it's an ongoing challenge of being an artist. is isn't just, isn't just writers that kind of go through. I think it's artists of all types where like, you're always trying to say a thing, you know, writing is the lifelong pursuit of saying the thing once and saying it right. Yeah. The problem is you'll never do it. You'll spend 90,000 words trying to say one sentence and never quite get it out there. And that's, that's the challenge of it. And so that perception where like readers will see you as one person and they'll have this idea of who you are. And then you have this idea of who you are as well and finding that place where the two can meet that's always a tricky thing. They tell you, don't meet your heroes. Don't meet people that you kind of admire or like people you're a fan of because they oftentimes aren't who you expect. Yeah. Um, and that's a, re- that's a weird phenomenon, but it's a real phenomenon. Like I've met people, I've met writers that I admired for years. It turned out to be terrible people. And it was like, oh, I wish I had never <laughs> met this dude. Um, so I hope to never be that for someone else. Like I hope to always be at least a pretty decent, respectable person when someone meets me. But it's, it's all about that duality, man. Like we all exist in these two forms and multiple forms and trying to find a balance is such a challenge in life, period. No, no, exactly. And I mean, we all we all bleed blood, right? Um, exactly. But, but what's tough and it's funny at times, but also too real in your book when, for example, um, Rennie, who for yep. those who have read the book, Rennie is a Harvard graduate. Let me say that because it's very important <laughs> to him. You better say he's it, a, you better say it. He's a Harvard graduate. <laughs> And uh, he is, he's a handler of sorts when the author is in a certain city. Uh, I believe he's in San Francisco at this point yep. and mm-hmm. Rennie's driving him around. I, that's all I'm going to say about Rennie's background because mm-hmm. he's an interesting character who I like a lot. But Rennie, like some other people later on in the book, turned to the author, the unnamed author, and says, you have to say something. You're a writer. Mm-hmm. You're expected to say something. And this burden feels unfair and I don't even know if I can say we ask for it but what do you do in those scenarios when someone wants you to be uh the voice of a people the voice of a movement the voice of more than just someone who wrote a hell of a book I think you you have to find your you have to find where you're saying at you have to find your place of sanity because the thing is writers usually begin trying to say something that's important to them like writing is a very selfish act let's just be honest about it It's it's an egotistical kind of act where it's like, I got things to say and you want to read about it. Like that's a very powerful thing to say about yourself. Yeah. And so usually when we start writing, it's from this place of, I have this feeling of this thing that I want to say and we say it. And then if you, you know, if, you, if you've written a few books and you have any kind of like, you know, even moderate success, right? People look at you, they want you to also speak for them because oftentimes mm. they feel that their voice, they can't say it in the way that you can say it. So they oftentimes yep. want you to speak for them. And so as artists, as writers, as whoever you are, like there's this position where you have to decide for yourself, like, do I want to speak for these people? Do I want to speak for me? Or is there a middle ground where you can actually do both and try to kind of not not please everyone, but like try to find your safe space and try to grow. I think as writers, 
um, you have to grow beyond just speaking for yourself. Um, mm. You still have to have those moments. Like you wholeheartedly have to have those moments when it's just you, but you have to be willing to like speak for others who cannot speak for themselves. And that's a duty as a human being. Ooh. Anytime someone cannot speak for themselves, you have a duty to speak for them, I think. I absolutely love that. And I absolutely agree with that, at least in terms of the way that I want to live my life. You know, some of my yeah. biggest inspirations, Nina Simone, Muhammad Ali, these mm -hmm. types of people, mm -hmm. Colin Kaepernick, right? Yeah. Um, LeBron, who LeBron didn't just shut up and dribble. Like mm -hmm. that woman told him, right? Um, he decided to stand up for more. Naomi Osaka, the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. For those just joining us, this is an interview between black American novelist Jason Mott and New York Times bestselling Jamaican Iranian author Mateo Ascaripour about Mr. Mott's 2021 National Book Award winner for fiction, Hell of a Book. Special thanks to the New York City Mercantile Library Center for Fiction for making this content available. To listen to this entire episode, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Speaking about facing things head on quote and this is from jack the media trainer um on page 106 this probably goes without saying but i'm going to say it anyway don't write about race specifically don't write about being black this conversation with jack the media trainer man i sped through it i actually want to reread this like every every couple of months because it took me out it, it felt as though jack was saying things that I've heard without people having said them, yep. if that makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like the coded language. Um, but you did decide to discuss race head on in this book. You decided to in include it heavily and make it a focal point of the entire novel. And it seems like you don't shy away from discussing it, you know, publicly. Um, mm -hmm. What, I guess, what, what pushed you to do that? Because I found in my experience that there is a cost Mm -hmm. in bringing up topics, especially race, that make people, especially white people, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of that can have people calling you angry, can have people calling you yep. ungrateful, can have uh, more material effects of your book not selling that well. And then maybe you not getting a large advance on another deal or another deal at all. So why? <laughs> Why? Why'd you do it? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I did it because I honestly had to. Like, there, there's a long winding backstory behind this novel where, um, you know, I had pitched it to a few people. Like, a lot, over the last 10 years, I pitched this novel maybe two or three times between my, my agent and, like, previous editors. Um, and no one's really excited about it. And, of course, like, I didn't, like, it wasn't about race at that time, but it was just, it was this thing that, like, like nobody kind of wanted to really kind of kind of come across. Um, and there is this, there is this idea idea and this phenomenon where publishers and this is not all publishers are like this is not trying to like you know slander the publishing industry but like there is this idea that like being neutral is the best way to move units and sell books and be be successful yeah. like if you pick a side if you pick a side in a topic that is kind of divisive and you say a thing and you commit to a certain philosophy or a certain politics um then suddenly you're no longer quite as viable as you were because if you go into this camp you're obviously outing yourself in this other camp yeah and so that Jack the Media Trainer saying was very much patterned after some some very code like it was never said quite that directly, yeah. but it was wholeheartedly encoded in certain conversations about the idea that like no like just run down the middle, get as many fans as you can on both sides, sell as many books as you can on both sides, and don't commit to any kind of hard discussions about things. And you know there's that there's that that, that expression I cannot remember the, the man who said it, but like he said that you know neutrality only helps the the oppressor. And I find mm. that to be a very true thing. The older I get, it's like you can't 
just be neutral in certain contexts. You have to talk about things yeah. because the longer you don't talk about them, the more it just helps the people who are you know, the oppressors in that situation. Um, so for me, after my third novel, I was out of contract. I had no publisher. And I told my agent, I said, I want to write a book about an author on book tour. My agent was still kind of like, ah, you know, okay, cool. But like, just whatever you want to do. So I went off and I wrote this book with no one seeing it. None of my friends really knew much about it. It was just this thing I did in secret. And I really, it was in that wake of, you know, George Floyd, like so many events were occurring and it was so overwhelming that I could not, could not wake up in the morning without being frustrated and tired and sick and angry of like the black experience in America being just magnified and like all these negative things. Yeah. So I started writing about that and somehow it combined with that author on book tour. And I was like, well, I'm tired of, I'm tired of being neutral. I'm gonna pick a lane pick a side and plant a flag and say the thing that I've been wanting to say for the last 10 years. And there it is. Do you feel like you incurred a sort of spiritual or emotional cost in not having said these types of things before or not having written about them in this way? I don't, I won't say that because the thing about it is like, um, you know, the, I've pondered, you know, I've been a part of these conversations my entire, like I did, you know, I marched in a, you know, I did a, I did a march for the NAACP when I was 10 years old. Like just, there was an yeah. incident occurred in my town where this man was shot. And it was like, a, like, so I've been, I've been involved in this. Yeah. You know, I've been black in America my whole life. So like, <laughs> yeah. you can't be, you cannot exist in this country and be black and not be a part of these things. Yeah. Um, and so for my writing, particularly early on, I want it to be known primarily for simply the quality of the writing more so than yeah. the topic of the writing. And yep. there's a weird knife edge balancing act that you have to kind of try to do there to make that happen. Because if you are in a minority of any sort and you write yep. anything, you cannot just be an author. You are the black author. You are the LGBTQ plus author. You are the female author. You are whatever that minority is, you become that. And it mm -hmm. is stamped upon you and you cannot escape it. And so I think I spent too many, not too many years, but like I spent a lot of my early career trying to trying to be in that middle space where it's like the, the work alone will stand up without the topical stuff. Yeah. And so finally, and again, in the midst of all that, I'm still living the life of a black man in America, still seeing all the things that happen, still getting pulled over for shenanigans. Like I'm still living the life. And I finally just got tired of only talking to my friends about it and not mm -hmm. talking to readers about it and not putting it into my art. There's this moment where you have to combine your pain with your art. Yeah. I think that was what happened there. No, thank you for that uh, authentic answer. And, and I ask because um, there have been points in my own life, right? When I, when I let things slide mm -hmm, or I mm -hmm. didn't speak up and then at night I'm beating myself up over it. Um, so it's just, it's good for you, for me to see that you wrote a book like this and, and knowing that um, neutrality isn't the best way. It might be the best for sales, but it's not the best for us as human beings dedicated to real progress. So thank you for that. Um, going back to something that you said a little bit, a little bit earlier, um, where you were writing this book without anyone knowing that you were writing it, you mm -hmm. were out of contract, you had written three books. What was it like to go back to that almost pure, innocent state as a writer again, when you were, where you were for lack of a better word, fully free again? It was, it was a mixture of I see you smiling. And terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it was, dude, because it, it was, it was great. And it was terrifying because I'm at, you know, I exist on, I'm a full-time writer. Like that's what I do full-time. And so like being out of contract means how am I going to eat a year from yeah. now? Like writing, writing is a very feast or famine existence. You go through these upswells and these downticks and like, 
you just kind of have to like figure out how to exist in that. And so for me being out of contract, working on a book that like my agent wasn't particularly excited about when I first pitched it to her, it was like, okay, I'm taking a big risk here. But yet at the same time, it felt amazing to not have an editor breathing down my back, not, not even having an agent even curious to know what it's about. Like to just be in that, that cave off by yourself where nobody knows what you're doing. No one's judging it. No one's waiting for it. No one's expecting it. Yeah. Um, that was absolutely terrific, man. I love being back there because there's a difference. You know, I was talking to you before we started, like, you know, um, Black Buck is your first novel and you were saying how you're working on your second novel right now. And I was telling you that like the second novel is actually more difficult because it's the first one that you do not write alone. Mm. Like it, and from, it will, it, from here on out, you never get to write alone again. Like you can, you can suppress voices to the back a little bit. Yeah. You never get to write alone again. And so that's why that first book is so special. And that second book is so difficult. And so for me, hell of a book was, I wasn't a hundred percent alone. Cause again, I still had an agent. I still had like, you know, careers I was trying to do, but like, I was so far away from everyone as far as what everyone was expecting that it was able to be the thing it wanted to be more than the thing I wanted to be or the thing the editor wanted it to be. It was able to just be what it was. I think that was some of the specialness of writing it. And I feel that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel that when I read it, um, that there was, what's the word? A high level of irreverence Mm -hmm. of you mm -hmm. just wanting to write the book that you wanted to write <laughs> for it to resonate yep. with the people you wanted it to yep. resonate with and for you to write it in the way that that you wanted it. And, and I say this as someone who has said those same things over the past six months so many times, like real mm -hmm. recognize, real, like I feel that. And mm -hmm. there was a question, there was a question that I, that I wanted to ask, but I'll get to it. Um, but talking about you writing the book the way that you wanted to write it, the voice, <laughs> the, the author's <laughs> voice is different. And you mentioned those movies from, yeah. I don't know when, man, the 50s or even or even further back, the, the shoot 'em up black and white, yep. where you got those, those slick white mobsters with the fedoras and the cigarettes, and somehow no one gets hit when they're shooting wildly. Uh, their guns probably weren't as sophisticated as the ones that we have now, uh, even though none of us need them. Um, how did you, how did you craft that voice and why did you write it in that way? Because it is very, very different. Yeah. It goes back to me wanting to just do the book that I wanted. Like, um, early writers and I, you know, and I count myself and it's like early writers, oftentimes you, you work from the framework of writers you admire and that's how you're yeah. supposed to do it. Like, you know, you had these training wheels that you spend a lot of your career, like looking back towards like that. And I had done that for quite a while. And so for me, having, having no contract, just off in the woods by myself, I said, I said, you know, if I'm gonna do this and no one's looking, then I'm gonna do what the hell I want. I'm gonna just make yeah. it the, the weirdest, awesomest book. Like I'm really put myself into it more than anything yeah. else. And so I'm a big fan of film noir, which is that whole genre of the dudes and the fedoras and the guns, Humphrey Bogart, like, yeah, it's such a, the language used in that, I'm such a fan of like language. I watched Deadwood, like any, anything with language is, you know, I'm already connected. And so I was watching that and I wanted to incorporate that. Um, you know, then there's also, there's also the moments when like it gets away from that as well. Yeah. You know, there's like Nick Cage references throughout the entire book. So I'm a massive <laughs> Nick Cage fan. It was hilarious. Dude, I and it was such a fun <laughs> ride. Cause like I was, I was just throwing stuff at the wall and like having fun with it. Yeah. 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 When you were, when you were refer referring to Nick Cage or when the author was referring to Nick Cage by his movies, <laughs> Mr. Mr. This, that, and the other, I thought, it was just so smart. Dude, that was um, so fun. It was funny, like, so 
that scene came in really late in the process. Um, my agent and I were editing the novel before we went to a publisher, we were editing it. And there were like, there were some other like sex scenes and my agent was like, there's too many sex scenes here. They're kind of redundant. Like they're, I don't know what's going on here. And so I said, I'll make a deal with you. I said, I'll take out the sex scenes, but I'm putting Nick Cage in. Yeah. And she was like, dude, whatever, man. So all of a sudden here's Nick Cage and it completely worked out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a note for my editor. She's in here too, to support you. And uh, shout out, shout out to Pilar. If I ever want to throw someone like Vin Diesel in a book randomly, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask that you please let me do it. For those just joining us, this is an interview between Black American novelist Jason Mott and New York Times bestselling Jamaican Iranian author Mateo Ascaripour about Mr. Mott's 2021 National Book Award winner for fiction, Hell of a Book. Special thanks to the New York City Mercantile Library Center for Fiction for making this content available. To listen to this entire episode, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. All right, so so you've said that this book is, is semi-autobiographical, and I mm -hmm. think that it is courageous for you to just come out there and say it. Maybe not. Maybe it's just you just keeping it real. Um, for me, I always try to troll people when they ask me how much of my book is actually me. Um, I, I blur the lines in a way where they can't always tell. And perhaps that is a form of protecting myself or not giving too much of myself away. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that you put um, a certain portion of yourself in this book. And there are parts of this book that are very, very difficult to get through as a reader. So I can imagine what they were like for you as a writer, parts dealing with bullying. Mm -hmm. Those parts, man, I hated those parts. I mean, I hated them because of what was happening. Right. I thought that I thought that the writing was an incredible and it, and it invoked all of those emotions in me, but they got me real mad because I, I was on a bus when I was reading that, you know, just in my mind at least, and seeing that play out and what it must have been like for that uh, young boy to be the subject of bullying, right? And then there's parts of police brutality, and you don't <laughs> you don't write them sparing any detail. So I have two questions now that I said that, but the first is, how did you take care of yourself while writing this book, or did you not need to? Were you able to put up a a wall between you and the book in order to write it? No, I definitely had to kind of do some self self care as much as that term gets thrown around a lot. I had to, had to kind of monitor myself as I was working on it because again, like, yeah, there, there are parts of this that are directly copied and pasted from my actual lifetime experiences and, and memories and childhood. And then there are other parts that I've kind of borrowed and tweaked around from like the, those people around me, like I said, like there, there are scenes in it that are pulled from events that occur in the small town that I grew up in, like stories that belong to another family that I'm not going to like, you know, yeah. out them and tell them their story, but like, so much of it was finding that space. And I actually used the comedy in the book. Like people oftentimes talk about how funny the book is in the comedy. The comedy was there, it's there for the reader secondarily, but it was primarily there to help me get through the act of writing it because I couldn't just working on it. I could not simply do the heavy parts and leave my heart ripped out on the page every day. I had to come back in and laugh a little bit as I was working on it. So that's where a lot of the comedy came from was me trying to like keep myself in the writing as I was working on so all those difficult scenes. I know it. I know it, brother. Um, that second question that I wanted to ask, uh, as I was asking you, the, the first one is, why did you decide to be so graphic and straightforward with some of these scenes, especially dealing with police brutality? You didn't sugarcoat any of it. And I don't want to give any spoilers away for those who haven't read the book, right. but why was it important, I guess, for you to write them that way? Because you, I think you have to. I think that Part of, part of the flaw and the challenge that we have as a society, and I would argue as a species, is we like to pretend that bad things don't happen. 
like to gloss over the bad things that are occurring. Yep. Um, because it makes our life easier. Like if I if I can wake up in the morning and not be depressed when I read the you know read the headline, it's like, cool. I'm gonna skip that headline. Yeah. And that's the thing that we oftentimes do. And so in the writing of this, I didn't want the reader to quote skip the headline. Like I it's like no, you got to get into the heart of this story, and wow. see the blood and the guts and the pain and the after effect that goes on for you know all this extended amount of time. Like you need to be there for that. You can't just show up for the good times and laugh and high five each other. Like, oh, that was so hilarious. And then not expect the pain that goes with it. Because in the life of these characters in the life, in my life, in the life of black Americans and Americans also large, but primarily black Americans, like, yeah, we laugh, we make the music, we make the videos, we have the fun, but man, it comes at a cost. People don't want to talk about that cost. They want to, you know, they want to hear the music. They want to dance. They want out, they want all the positives and pretend the negatives aren't occurring and that's part of the problem. So for me, there was no way I was letting readers get by with just experiencing the fun parts and not paying the paying the piper, the same piper I have to pay that you have to pay. It's like, no, we, we gotta share this. That's part of the problem. We don't share this thing. We gotta share this thing for all of us to kind of get through it, so. Wow, I'm just, I'm just processing that for a second. Sharing some of the responsibility Mm -hmm. or burden, if we want to call it, with the reader throughout the course of a couple hundred pages as the price for admission to a certain extent, right? That this is what you are going to get an unabashed version of what it is like to be me or this person mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. looks like me on the page. Um, I think that that perhaps is the greatest gift that you gave the reader in this. We're going to be taking audience Q&A. We have two questions so far. But a couple more questions from my end. You would just reference people wanting to skip the headlines. Mm -hmm. And there is a part at the very end of the book um, that made me think of a few things. One was the work that it takes to digest reality. Mm -hmm. And two was um, this monologue that Dave Chappelle gave on SNL, where he says that, I can't even tell the truth without a punchline. Um, do you do you think that reality at times can become too over, overwhelming for for people to even act? That there's this analysis paralysis. You rep, uh, you or or the author references it in the book many times by saying it would be too big. It mm -hmm. would be too mm -hmm. big for me to comprehend. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And I'm not trying to place you on this pedestal as a guru, but what would be uh, a word or two of advice that you would have for any human being, regardless of their background, in terms of digesting this reality in the world that we live in today? I know it's big. Yeah, it's definitely big, man. Like we all we all have to take care of ourselves. Like we all we all exist and we have these emotional states that are, are vulnerable and are subject to getting overwhelmed because the news the world will overwhelm you. Life will overwhelm you both on the small scale of like just people that you know, tragedies that happen to people you love, like it will overwhelm you. And then you, you stress it out to like trying to conquer the world and like all the stuff you see on the news is diff it's very difficult. And so I don't knock people for having to protect themselves. It's something that I do, something that we all do. But what I, what I want to encourage people to actually do is make sure that your level of self-care doesn't come at the cost of other people's sanity and other people's lives sometimes. And I think that's part of the problem. There's a large demographic in America in particular who their self-care is harming a huge amount of other people. 
because they don't want to have certain conversations that are difficult because they don't want certain things taught in schools because they don't want a certain narrative of what America is or, or is supposed to be to be exposed as a false narrative. They're willing to sacrifice a lot of other people and the, the health and safety of others. And that's when it becomes a problem. So I was so the encouragement that I would say to people is, yeah, take care of yourself, but make sure you're taking care of other people too. like make sure that you are also making space for them to live the live the lives that they want to live while you're trying to like carve out your own space as well like americans have this belief of like the zero sum economy the zero sum equation like i think you know bread from capitalism where like if i win you know if somebody else is winning then it means i can't win too and it's like no that's totally yeah. not the case like we can all win we just gotta like we gotta actually like reach out and help each other and like be aware of each other even that in and of itself the ability to see people and recognize them as like meaningful people in the world. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. No, I, I appreciate that, and and I appreciate you taking the time to um, share your own thoughts, right? Because there there's always a person behind the book, and mm -hmm. within this book itself, right? You're given the real, depicting depicting many scenarios, like I was saying, viscerally, but you're also displaying so many contrasting opinions of those various scenarios of, of what it means to live in this nation, of what it means to be black, of, of the responsibility or lack thereof that people have with contending with the reality that we all experience. Why, <laughs> why did you blur these lines so much? You know, it would have been much cleaner for the reader for you to just give them a nice sort of bottled answer like you gave us just now of this is how I think that people should live. This is how I think that you should think. But there are so many contrasting opinions in this book where you see these characters who could be racist. You see these characters who have inflicted some level of violence on black folk and they're humanized to, the, to a point to a certain extent where you're like, you know what? I see where you're coming from, man. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why did you write it in that way? Because I wanted, as much as it is an absurdist text and is meant yeah. to be this farcical at times, I wanted to be realistic in how people behave. Like life isn't black and white. Like that, you know, right. people, no one is the villain in their own story. We're all heroes in our own mind. So even the people mm -hmm. that are doing terrible things, they believe they're doing the best thing possible. They're making the best choices. And so when you encounter characters who all of whom believe they are doing the good things, to them, they are, and you have to find that space to, that's, that's part of what empathizing is. Empathizing is, you know, not agreeing with always, but actually like understanding their point of view and like being able to feel the thing that they're feeling and then steer that in a certain direction. So what I wanted to do with this was, I didn't want to just preach at readers for, you know, 300 pages and say, oh, this is how you should be doing stuff because this person's evil, this person's good. It's like, no, like we're all this really weird mix of good and evil. And we do some really awesome stuff. We do some terrible stuff but let's start steering it a little bit more towards doing those positive things and actually like recognizing that people do exist. Like so many, one, of the, one of the big recurring themes in this is this idea of people being seen and being unseen. And one of the greatest flaws of humanity is our ability to not see each other. Right? That is something that we are, we, we, the brain wants to exclude data. Like the brain, yeah. brain says, oh, people are people and just put them into a block of like abstract concepts. You don't see that like lives are being lived every day, man. You walk by people on the street you don't recognize they're living entire lives just as rich as yours are. I think that's part of the problem that we all have as people. Wow. Um, we don't see their own histories, right? Like mm -hmm. everyone has their own history. And, and one thing that I peeped is that history is a central theme of this book. Mm -hmm. The history that the author is trying to hand down to the kid whenever the kid appears. Um, 
and for for the reader right you're if you haven't read the book then then you'll you'll meet the kid and you'll know that uh the kid is is a young man that um could or could not be real who's who's appearing to the author throughout the, the course of the novel um there is soot's mother soot another character whose story is running parallel to the authors in hell of a book um you discussed epigenetics mm -hmm. and for those who aren't familiar with epigenetics it's basically the uh, genetic concept that all of us are carrying things from our forebears from our ancestors literally in our genes and it is brought up oftentimes when discussing um black people who are the offspring of formerly or enslaved individuals and what that trauma means genetically or biologically and how it manifests today so mm -hmm. why was it important for you to focus on history and to make sure to provide historical context on so much of what transpires in this novel. Because for those, for those, all those reasons you just mentioned, like there is that epigenetic kind of component, but there's also just the reality that, you know, history informs our present in so many degrees that people want to pretend aren't real. You know, we, people argue about, oh, that was a hundred years ago. That was 20, that was however many years ago. It's like, yeah, and we're still paying for it. Like we're, right? we're still caught up in how that works. You know, there, you know, and I wanted to make that the forefront of, of the storytelling and like make that big component. There's a section there where you talk about the South being America's longest running crime scene. I love um, that line. I love that line. <laughs> because it is like, it's still, it's still going on. Like we're still trying to solve problems and trying to deal with the after effects. Well, some of us are trying to deal with it, others are trying to ignore the after effects. Like there's that, there's that whole conversation to be had there. But we can't pretend that history isn't a part of what's happening in America right now. And again, especially with the move now to kind of get rid of critical race theory in schools and like, there's this move to pretend that the past has not influenced the present and the past does not continue to influence the present and will not influence the future. And that is terrifying. Like that, is, that is such a, such a flawed piece of logic and a flawed way for people to exist that the novel had to approach that. I had to kind of talk about that. This collective forgetting Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to ask you a question about COVID or the pandemic, but I, I, I do often think about it, like provided all of this improves to the point where people have the luxury of forgetting it, mm -hmm. will they? Right. Because it was so traumatic and, and no one wants to remember what we're experiencing right now. For those just joining us, this is an interview between black American novelist Jason Mott and New York Times bestselling Jamaican Iranian author Mateo Ascaripour about Mr. Mott's 2021 National Book Award winner for fiction, Hell of a Book. Special thanks to the New York City Mercantile Library Center for Fiction for making this content available. To listen to this entire episode, please visit us on Facebook at forward slash Lou Reads FM. Uh, we're going to get into audience questions right now. Casey Davis asked a question that you might have partially uh, answered already. Critical race theory and education on politics is currently such a hot button topic. What are your personal thoughts as to where we are today? I think that the the move to get rid of critical race theory, critical race theory is terrible, quite frankly. Um, I think it comes from, kind of like I was saying before, it comes from this desire to build a certain narrative of what America is. Um, D.L. Hughley on his talk show one time, I was listening to him, he talks about America has a brochure. Um, and people oftentimes come to brochure, come to America based upon what the brochure said. And then when they get here, they find out that it's not quite what the brochure said. Mm. And I feel like this move to get rid of critical race theory is very akin to that, where people want to scrub out and erase the parts of American history that don't fit the brochure because they want to keep that brochure alive. Um, 
And the reality is like, no, you, if you love a thing, you have to recognize its flaws and be willing to fix those flaws and make it better. So rather than try to get rid of critical race theory, what we need to do is be embracing it and trying to find out how to get rid of it, how to fix the racial issues. And I mean, there's nothing more racist than trying to pretend that racism didn't exist. Like that is, that's, that's the sure. irony. I don't understand how people don't understand that. It's like, you, you don't get any more racist than that. Like you just don't. So yeah, I, my, my current outlook on like where things are, I try to be an optimist. Like I really think that there are enough, like I, I teach undergrad sometimes and like the young students are such a breath of fresh air because there is such optimism there and there is such a desire to change and a desire for their voices to be heard. So I, my hope is that eventually they will make the changes happen um, mm. that we are, that are trying to be undone by certain older generations. I think they're, I think the, the new crowd is going to fix a lot of things, or at least I hope they are. So do you feel really in your bones that this next generation is just gonna like burn everything that doesn't serve humanity to the ground or, and this is one of my own questions, sorry, audience. Or do you feel like there still will be those who have learned things from their parents, from their grandparents, and hold on to those traditions? No, I don't think anything is getting burned to the ground anytime soon. I think that big dramatic changes like that rarely occur. They do occur, but it's very rare. Because again, there's so much, there's so many generations of indoctrination that you have to yeah. undo to have those moments actually occur that I think is, while not impossible, is just very slim. So again, I think that what will what will happen is you'll see this continuous because it's already it's been happening like there's this continuous slow march towards more more equality and more kind of more humane treatment of each other the yeah. problem is there are these backslides like people get tired of waiting i'm tired of waiting like yeah everyone is tired of waiting for the day when things are better because it, it but i do believe that on the long enough timeline it will trend towards that kind of equality that kind of space but it, it's going to be a hard fought battle like there's always going to be the people who put in the other direction the people who wanted to go back to the way you know the good old days the way it was whatever you want to call it the good old days were only good for like you know a certain demographic of people for everybody that mint julep that mint julep on the porch yeah, type yeah exactly the old mint julep yeah that's exactly it dude like there that nostalgia that people have things were simpler when i was a kid no they weren't no they weren't i guarantee <laughs> they weren't dude you were simpler when you were a kid <laughs> the world was not simpler when you were a kid and that goes for any demo anybody of any age like I, it always makes my head hurt, especially when people are like, so I'm 43. I get people my age talking about how it was simple. No, it wasn't, dude. Like, I was there. It wasn't simple back then, dude. We just, we didn't know how jacked up the world was. That's right. And I think that's the phenomenon people are always fighting against, this idea that, like, things used to be better. No, they weren't, man. They they weren't. You were just not as aware of how bad things were. And that's Fact. a gift. That's one of the gifts of childhood, that you don't know how bad the world is. But eventually, you got to be an adult and embrace it and try to change it. Speaking about childhood, there's a question from Jamie Thomas. Uh, thank you for this space and the book. What about the kid? Do you want readers to sit with the most after reading? Hmm, that's a good question. I kind of want people to to see the kid as, I'm trying not to give too, too many spoilers. Yeah, as well. we didn't really discuss the kid that much. Yeah, exactly. Um, because the kid is a complicated character. Like he yeah. is, he is in very, very many ways a representation of a lot of the kids and a lot, a lot of the demographics that the book is talking about. Like yeah. the kid is tied to Trayvon Martin. The kid is tied to all these other kids who lose their childhoods. Like a lot of, and losing your childhood doesn't always just mean getting shot by police or dying in whatever way. Like losing your childhood also means the recognition that because of your skin color, the world is different. Mm -hmm. um, there's a scene in the book where a lot of the books tries to discuss what parents do 
when they have that discussion to talk with their yeah. kid. Like my parents had it with me and you know, oh, yeah. I have my nieces and nephews and it go, it's, it's part of the black experience. And so the kid is trying to find his space in that. The kid is someone who is at this point where he understands that the world is different. And he's trying to figure out how to make, how to make sense of that. And he wants to, he wants the author to help him out. So for readers, I want them to kind of really understand that this is the kid is universal. The kid is someone like all the kids, all the adults that you know who are black were the kid at some point in their lives. All all of their children are the kids. Like this is this is a universal component where like you find out the American narrative is not your narrative. James Baldwin said it back in the 60s, like the American narrative, at some point you realize is not yours. Your narrative is different. And what do you do with that? Like what part of your voice gets squashed and destroyed? because you know that the rules are different for you. Um, that's what the kid is trying to figure out and trying to discuss. That's what I want readers to kind of take away from that. Yeah, as, as I was reading it, I was like, some, some young ones should be reading this book mm -hmm. as well. What do, you, mm -hmm. what do you think is like the youngest age that a young adult should be to pick this book up and make sense of it? Dude, I think, I, I hope, my hope is that it'll be a book that people can pick up as, you know, five, six, seven, like when you're young and have it grow with you. Like, There'll yeah. obviously be, be components and themes that are over, you know, certain kids' heads. Yeah. But the thing is, it's around the age of five or six or seven that you do realize you're different and yeah. you, you did nothing wrong. You were just born with a certain skin color. And now the American narrative is completely different from you. And you spend arguably your entire life trying to figure out what that means. Or at least I spent yeah. a large part of my life and even still today, I'm trying to figure out what that truly means to me. Like oh, what yeah. got taken away when I understood that? What did I gain when I understood that? Like, where's the where's the balance sheet for that moment when you realize that things are dramatically different for you? And so for me, like I wrote it with you know adults in mind, but with children in mind too, because I think that's a question they struggle with, and that's a question they spend a lot of time struggling with. Is like, how do you navigate that when the world is different for you? And I want parents to have that discussion a bit more. Like part of part of the talk is that the rules are different for you, but I would love it if this book becomes a place where parents and children can talk about mom, dad, what did you do when you found out that it was different? And how did you navigate that? How do you mm. deal with the anger? Like, mm. I remember my entire, my teenage years were being angry at white people and angry at America. Yeah. Because I, it was me processing things are different from me just because I'm black. Yeah. And trying to find that space. And I think that's what the book wants to talk about as well. There's a, there's a loss of innocence, right? And you discuss mm -hmm. this in the book, but you're also saying right now that parents should have this talk. I mean, it's like you have to run a cost-benefit analysis on mm -hmm. the benefits of having this talk with young black and brown folk of you are mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. These institutions will treat you differently, but more specifically, um, cops will treat you differently. Mm -hmm. Put your hands up, say yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Um, make sure that you walk away afterwards. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. that you retain your life, but that you walk away. Um, it's such a balancing act. I mean, I want to know, I want to know your thoughts on, I don't even know how to articulate this question. Like, is there ever a time when ignorance is bliss for a young black person in America? And when in, an adult in their life, whether it be an uncle, uh, a guardian, an older friend that is like related mm -hmm. to the family but not in a weird way you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. is there ever a time for older folk to allow a child a black child to be a child no wholeheartedly man like and that so i'm, I'm gonna tell you a personal weird wacky story that i haven't told many people um 
so when I was a kid, like, you know, I'm, I'm an old head, <laughs> but when I was a kid, like back in the day in the South, like there was, this, you know, Dukes of Hazzard used to come on TV. And like, if you don't know what that is, to oh, show yeah. about these two good old boys driving, a, you know, the General Lee's orange car, got orange Confederate flag. <laughs> yeah, with the flag on the top, right? Had, had the Confederate flag on the top of that mug, right? So me being like, I was, you know, I was pretty young at the time, was reruns. I was super young. I didn't even know what the flag was. It was just a cool yeah. show where dudes drove a car and jumped bridges and did all kind of wild stuff. Um, so I love that show, dude. Loved it more than anything else. And this is going to sound really stupid. I'm telling the story anyway. Like, I used to want, like, the, the old, like, the, the Dukes of Hazzard bed sheets. Like, just like, oh, you know, your kid, you want to get the bed sheets that you love, dude. Yeah. My mom, bless her heart up in heaven right now, bless her heart, dude. My mom went out and bought me these damn General Lee embla emblazoned bed sheets for me to sleep on. Because all she knew was her son loved this show, and he was too innocent to know the reality of the history behind the things that he was buying. And wow. it's funny because years later, when I was about 19 or 19 or so, not long before she passed away, she retold me this whole story because I'd forgotten about it. And she's like, yeah, she's like, you would not believe the looks I got when I went to the store and I buy these bed sheets. And this white, this white lady is ringing me up with these bed sheets that have the, the Confederate flag emblazoned all across them. But I wanted you to have them because that was a show you loved. And I knew you didn't know any better. And it didn't matter. You, you were just in love with the show and you got these things. So like, wholeheartedly there are these moments in people's lives where like black and brown and minority children deserve to have their childhoods the sadness of america is they don't get to keep their childhood as long as other kids do and that's the problem that's the thing that we need to be working towards like they should be allowed to stay children just as long as white kids are um and they're not and that's part of the problem jason thank you so much man for, for your time for your candor for again interacting with me as a, a young black writer and just sharing all of your wisdom, man, it um, it it is piercing and it's necessary, and and I just appreciate it so much. But most of all, thank you for writing a hell of a book. Yes, <laughs> I worked it in there. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was this was an awesome interview, dude. Thanks so much for doing it, man. That's it for this episode of Louisville Reads. Join us next episode reading and reviewing The Promise by South African novelist Damon Gallagher, winner of the United Kingdom's prestigious 2021 Man Booker Prize. This is Louisville Reads. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.